Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 4th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. It's the 30-year anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, and the repression in current times is something that should rattle all our cages. Today, all foreign correspondents are not allowed in that vicinity, as one indicator for you all to take in. The California Democratic Convention in San Francisco last weekend was quite an amazing pageant to behold. It was, I would give it pageant over policy, but there was some policy. It was really interesting. I was glad to be able to witness that, and I will be looping in all kinds of details as it's uh, appropriate over future interviews. Today, we're serving up some events that you won't want to miss. They're right around the corner. Jackie Wu of Orange County Registrar Voters will post us on what to expect with voting in the presidential primary March 3rd. And if you think it's too soon, stay with me. There's a whole dog and pony show moving around the county about the new ways we'll be voting from the primary on. Jackie will lead us through the process, including details about the community workshops, which start with one in Irvine, that's a Saturday, this June 8th. In the second segment, Dr. Stephen Tucker will speak in advance of his conducting, along with his twin brother, Dr. Paul Tucker, Journey to Freedom. This will be the world premiere of the late Bernard Gilmore, UCI's Claire Trevor School of the Arts professor, just passed away. The world premiere will be performed at the Soka Performing Arts Center on June 9th. We'll be right back after a really short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest today is Jackie Wu, the Orange County Registrar of Voters Community Outreach Manager Extraordinaire with the California Primary. It's right around, it's just not, it's not that far really. March 3rd is not that far. As an outreach manager, Jackie oversees community engagement, bilingual poll worker recruitment, and compliance with federal and state language assistance mandates. Prior to joining the Orange County Registrar of Voters, Jackie was an administrative analyst with the City of Palos Verdes Estates and was the policy manager for the Orange County Asian Pacific Islander Community Alliance. She previously served as a member of the League of California Cities Community Service Policy Committee and as an inaugural fellow in the Southern California Leadership Network's New American Leaders Fellowship Program. In addition, Jackie served on the boards of various community organizations. She grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, earned her Bachelor of Arts in degree in political science from UC Irvine, and completed a professional certificate in advanced public engagement for local government from Pepperdine University. She comes to us today from Santa Ana, straight in the thick of staff training for those workshops that we're going to be talking about. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jackie Wu. Thank you very much, Claudia. I appreciate the introduction. Well, <laughs> Thank you for your kind words. Oh, please. <laughs> we, we, you're the one. And so what? tell us um, what the impetus was for these changes in Orange counties and other counties, new voting measures. Sure. Um, so I know that this is, it was a legislation that allowed 
counties to be able to change the vote centers, but I think that came from county election officials realizing voting in elections had not changed since 1800s, and there was a change needed to reflect how voters vote today rather than they did in the 1800s. Um, the Voters' Choice Act became state law in 2016. We had the 2018 elections, and then the Orange County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously, unanimously to approve moving to vote centers in February 2019. So that was a that that was a little education process getting to that was a second vote for them to to consider how Correct. this was the Orange County Board of Supervisors learning curve there. So. And did the tabulation for the midterm election ballots cast, I mean, it was a protracted tabulation post-actual election day. Was that a little additional sort of impetus? <laughs> I, I, I'm not being facetious. the Board of Supervisors. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah, well... So then as we focus, Orange County's one of them, and there's L.A. County's going to join. There's five other counties that have already been reconfiguring this whole process. Mm -hmm. The early California presidential primary on March 3rd, that moving up to an earlier time also, I guess, was part of that. So what were the lessons learned from those previous election cycles to incorporate into what this amazing new rollout of a program is? Sure. So... At the local level, we observed three major voter trends in Orange County. Uh, we noticed that more voters are choosing to vote by mail. Um, there's been a 6,507% increase from 1996. Whoa. In the past, yeah, you had to have a reason to get a vote by mail ballot, and there were only certain reasons you could get it. Um, starting in about the early 2000s, that there was a law that removed you could get a vote by mail ballot for any reason, and thus we've seen the popularity of it grow. Okay. So then that, that's one lesson. Any other lessons? Yes. Okay. Go um, we've also seen decreasing, because more, more voters are choosing the vote by mail, we've seen decreasing in-person voters. So currently about 61% of voters vote by mail. Um, but then again, we project that 91% of vote by mail, people will choose to vote by mail um, heading into 2022, just as current um, trends are. Um, we're also seeing that voters are choosing to drop off their vote by mail ballots in person at polling places, even though that they're not voting there, they do like the option to be able to drop off their vote-by-mail ballots to someone uh, who represents our office and brings it back to our office directly rather than, say, drop it in the mailbox. And I actually heard on a public radio station this morning, a PSA out of L.A., that it's a great idea to bring your offspring with you to the voting process to begin <laughs> that. So they're doing some year work for you. They should. I mean, that's what all parents should be doing anyway. But so, but that PSA is out there. So it's the drum beating is up. <laughs> it's cranking up. So let's talk about. Oh, and were the activists themselves continuing to demand more of the, this whole process? Was that a bit of an impetus? Uh, well, I think we definitely hear from the community that they want to see more and they want to see more opportunities for voters. So I'm sure that definitely encourages legislators and policymakers to want to respond to that. Okay. So let's begin to talk about what actually is a voting center. Sure. So the way we look at vote centers, they're a one-stop shop for voters to handle any voting needs. Before at polling places, voters could only vote and drop off their ballots at the polling place. Now they can update their registration, vote at any location. They're not tied to just the polling place that's closest to the address that they've listed as their residence. They can get their ballot on demand, which means they get the ballot that they're supposed to receive when they vote, thus eliminating most provisional ballots. 
Okay, and so let's go over uh, some of the, the features. The duration of the actual voting will look different because of the way the voting centers are set up. Let's talk about right. how long this will go on. Right. Let's say as we're, we're approaching March 3rd, we're going to go backward and when, how long this is going to take. Sure. So under the vote center model, actually every voter receives a vote by mail ballot, whether or not they've requested it. So that's something that's going to change for, I think, a lot of voters who've never vote, voted by mail before. We start sending out ballots uh, 29 days before Election Day. So for the March 2020 presidential primary, that means February 3rd. And then voters will have a chance to submit it back or wait for in person if they wanted to vote at a vote center. Okay. And then the locations, there's quite a few. There's, I mean, it's in the hundreds. There are. We're currently anticipating 188 um, as we are analyzing data and getting community feedback on the best locations to put them throughout the county, we may decide to add more, but we haven't decided yet. And the county feedback, I've got a, um, a survey with me that I completed when you had the press event at Irvine's City Hall. It was about a couple weeks ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And so are you still taking those surveys? We are. We'll be taking them up until mid-July. So folks have an opportunity to give feedback to us on where they would ideally like to have a vote center that would be convenient for them. We're looking for places that people already go to, that are people are already familiar with in a community like city halls, libraries, community centers, popular retail centers. And the ocvote.com forward slash vote center pulls up that survey among other information tips. Correct. It's okay. a great place to get an overview of vote centers and then it'll lead you to taking the survey as well. Okay. Until July, what was the date again? Uh, 15th. Okay, July 15th. And then the other features here is that there's the the permanent ballot drop boxes. There's 110 counting. How Correct. Will, and th those are, it says permanent ballot drop box in your press information. So how does that work? How can people recognize that? I mean, it's, it's sort of obvious <laughs> with the color scheme, but still. Yes. Our ballot drop boxes are not going to be your average, you know, blue U.S. Postal Service. They're going to be bright yellow with um, wrap on them that you can notice them from the street. They'll be very easy to, to, to point out. And the great thing about permanently installing them is that voters will be able to know where they can drop off their vote-by-mail ballot regardless of the election because I know in the past, and under the polling place model and potentially under the vote center model, it really depends on which sites are willing to serve as uh, a voting location. So that might change, but where we're placing these permanent ballot drop boxes will be the same election after election. And so is that also something that in the vote center feedback survey that you'll get an idea of where to put more of those? Yes. Okay. And then, as you said, each voter is going to automatically get a vote by mail ballot. And then the countywide acceptance of ballots is another feature that I think people ought to start thinking about here too that's going to accommodate especially students who weren't sure in Orange County where they ought to be to be active in this parcel. Right. Yeah. So it is really neat um, under the vote center model that you can go to any vote center that's convenient for you. I think in the past when people realize it's election day and then they see a you know vote here sign that may not be the polling place that they're assigned to under the vote center model it it doesn't matter because we can electronically check you in and verify real time, you know, whether or not you voted. And then we can print you a ballot that's the one that you're supposed to receive on the spot so you can go ahead and vote. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest here on Ask a Leader is Jackie Wu. 
Orange County Registrar of Voters Outreach Manager, reaching out for voters to get on board ahead of the California presidential primary next March 3rd. And we're going through the changes here for that very process. There's, in addition, I think this is going to be reassuring for even seasoned voters that you're professionalizing the staff. I mean, everybody, there's a lot of training going on now, but that's existing registrar voters, employees. But you're going to be professionalizing all the people that will be managing the polling places. Correct. We are no longer going to be um, having volunteer staff the polling places, but rather at these vote centers we'll have professional staff that we're bringing on as county employees to help at the vote centers. And they'll receive extended training. I think in the past when we've had volunteers, the longest training we've had is about three and a half hours. (laughs) With these vote center employees, they'll be trained for several days, possibly a week. (laughs) Okay. Well, and and that's very that's very critical to the whole engagement. And I imagine the more proficient the polling place employee is, that you're improving the engagement of the voter, flipping, uh, converting them into being habitual, assuring they'll be habitual voters. Right. So we're really thinking that all of this is going to lead to a much better experience for the voter when they come into a vote center. An experience leading to. A commitment to the whole process. So then <laughs> there are, as you show on your workshop printout, there's several workshops, several languages they'll be conducted. And talk about the languages for all the materials involved in this process. Right. So Orange County um, has several languages that we're required to support under the Federal Voting Rights Act, which means everything that we print in English, we also print in those languages, and those languages include Spanish, Vietnamese, Chinese, and Korean. At the state level, the state requires us to also provide assistance in Tagalog and Farsi, or Persian, uh, which is at a lesser level, but we do provide some assistance in those languages. The assistance, but that which ones appear in the, like the voter pamphlet and the absentee ballots? Right. The vote uh, by for mail, those, um, that would be Spanish, Vietnamese, Chinese, and Korean. Okay. And I'm not sure if I was diverted for a moment, but also that the, the from now on the vote by mail is free postage. Did you ever say that? I have not, oh. but that is a great thing to point out, especially now that every <laughs> voter is going to receive a vote by mail ballot. That it is free postage on the return of the ballot to our office. So I guess that was it's a, that's a county expense. So I guess that's one of the things the board of supervisors had to weigh whether the outlay of funds was yielded a dividend for them for us for the public good so but it also takes the guesswork out of how many stamps depending on right. how many propositions are on <laughs> how many pages ballot. how many pages of the ballot <laughs> right so that's that's really a big deal not to it used to be i think it if you had a permanent vote by mail which i used to have is a permanent vote by mail that was issued from the defense department Department because we were overseas when we were getting that vote by mail ballot mm-hmm. and so and that those always were postage free but now everybody's is so that that takes away so let's talk about the vote center community workshops that begin in Irvine this Saturday if you're listening to this Saturday June 8th it's at the South Coast Chinese Center Irvine Chinese School from 10 to noon. What do we need to know about those workshops? 
Well, we're very excited that you're helping us promote and get the word out about these workshops. They're really for, for anyone in the public to come in. They don't need a baseline knowledge. They can come in and get educated on what vote centers are, what kind of feedback we're looking to get from the community as we plan for these vote centers. It's going to be a major change, and we want to involve the community in it. I think um, for those who are interested in finding more information, I think our, our vote center website is a good yes. uh, start. So that's ocvote.com dot com slash vote center. It's definitely a great place to get some background on the legislation, what started in the past came to the present day, what we're looking at, how's it going to look in Orange County, and go from there. So since I don't want anybody to be complacent about if they think March 3rd is far away, <laughs> it, is, it is, I mean, you, who knows better than the Orange County Registrar Voters Employees, how fast those come in. It's sort of like, I'm sure, I always think of it as an exponential load on all of you. It just, as it each day approaches, it gets steeper and steeper, the slope to <laughs> attend all this. So, so how do you want to get us ready now for March 3rd to make sure that everybody's, you know, they're fluent in how, how this is going to work and how they mm-hmm. can bring each other to use all those different options of uh, where to cast those ballots they're getting, the vote by mail right. ballots. So I can do a little bit of a timeline. Yes. Starting on January 23rd, we'll start sending out the voter information guides or sample ballots. So voters will start uh, to be able to review the different measures, different candidates, candidate statements that are on the ballot. Then on February 23rd, which is 29 days before Election Day, vote-by-mail ballots will be sent out. And then we'll also open up our ballot drop-off boxes as well so voters can start returning their uh, vote-by-mail ballots. Uh, Then on February 22nd, we'll have our first set of vote centers opening. We'll have 38 open, which will include weekends as well, so that's pretty neat. Yes. They'll be open for 10 days before Election Day. Then heading into the final weekend, before Election Day, when most people start to vote, they realize an election is going on, we're going to have approximately 188 vote centers open so with extended hours, so voters will be able to uh, decide what's most convenient for them and uh, do in per- in per- and come to vote in person if they'd like. And, of course, Election Day, March 3rd, 2020. <laughs> so... It's a, it's kind of a, it's a finer point, and I don't mean to broadside you with this, Jackie, but I don't know if there's a way you can, you're able there to detect a pattern of when vote by mail ballots are cast. With, uh, I mean, if people are getting more and more interested in hearing the last sort of utterances from the candidates to know, like, what are we going to do? I mean, if if you're seeing, if if there's either with social media inputs, with uh, breaking news that people mm-hmm. decide, no, there's no way I'm going to vote ahead of time. I'm going to wait until the last possible day that these campaigns are rolling out their candidates. Is there any any way to discern the sort of how their voters are bunching up around the what's unfolding in current events? I mean, we can certainly look at dates that when we start to receive the bulk of vote-by-mail ballots into our office. I mean, we've seen... Historically, vote-by-mail voters turn in, return their vote-by-mail ballots early. However, we've seen a, a trend where we receive more ballots back from polling places on Election Day than yes. we get the 29 days before. So there is some data to, to support that, but whether or not there's a direct connection, we haven't analyzed it. Okay. So 
how do then we were talking about the the website as are there other are you uh, up on social media so you're you're capturing people that get all their news there curate i'm i'm get i'm getting painfully clear on how how much certain demographics rely on their news curated from social media are you going to be present there or are yes. you present now? We are. We are present. We have accounts on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So we are trying to, we've been more proactive about posting and getting information out on social media. So for those who do want to follow us on Facebook, our handle or username is OCROV. On Twitter, it's OC Registrar, R E G I S T R A R. Instagram, also OC Registrar. Okay, good. And are, does that allow you then with the social media accounts to rapidly adapt to actually the federally and state-mandated languages and, and perhaps more? We're looking at different social media platforms that those language communities prefer to communicate on. We've seen and heard from community feedback that it varies. It's not everyone is on one specific one, but rather they have unique nuances where they prefer maybe to have receive their news from, for example, WeChat, uh, WhatsApp. Um, so we're kind of exploring, expanding different social media platforms to be on. Okay. Well, what other bits that we haven't covered yet, Jackie, you want to make sure in this almost half an hour uh, public service announcement to the to the Orange County Registrar voters? Oh, well, thank you, Claudia. I think um, we were able to discuss a lot of good information for people to know. I mean, there's going to be more coming is what I can probably uh, share with those that are listening. We are planning on a very extensive effort to be out there in the community. So not only are we doing these community workshops over the summer, but we're going to plan to do even more into the fall and winter as we head into March 2020. What kind, what would those kinds of workshops be doing the fall and early winter? Well, I'm not sure if those will be workshops at that point, but really just getting, reminding folks, you know, something that we're telling you now in June Folks may not recall later okay. on during the year, but as right. we approach that, it's going to be top of mind, and people might be thinking, I'm going to go to the same polling place I've voted at for you know the last 20 years, and it may or may not be there, especially if it was, for example, like a garage. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because that is a sort of a, it is ritualistic in a way. So in your earlier mention of propositions that uh, for the primary there are only certain propositions that are allowed to be on there. The main statewide propositions are only allowed to be on the general election ballot. But it's, it's those are municipal, local propositions, are they not, that are allowed Correct. to be in the primary. So that's... Yes. And those those take a lot of research for people to appreciate what is the ramification of what becomes of those propositions. So it's, yeah. All right. Well, I'm withholding my one of my really standard bear questions for when I get Neil Kelly on a month before our primary. So when I get him on in February, uh, that deals with security. That's not your purview, Jackie. So, but I just want to let listeners wonder, like they're thinking, why is there nothing mentioned about security? Because it's OC Registrar Voters certainly is the as I always say, the gold standard of managing election infrastructure, and there's OC Registrar Voters leads with dealing with the vulnerabilities in every aspect of that, including 
including social media sort of undermining. So I will save that for Neil later. Jackie, I want to thank you for being on today's show. And uh, we'll have you back whenever you're, you know, needing to say something more that's needing a little bit, uh, refine the point, and we'll, get, we'll produce some PSAs too to make sure everybody's on board. Oh, thank you, Claudia. We appreciate it. Okay, thank you. So that was Jackie Wu, and she's the outreach manager at the Orange County Registrar of Voters, and that was the what we were going to post you on up in the lead-up to the primary in California, the presidential primary being earlier. We're going to take a station break, and then... We'll be back with Stephen Tucker. I had him sit in with me yesterday to talk about the journey to freedom. This segment we're hearing is a Bernard Gilmore, one of his most famous, one of his folk songs. We'll be right back after a station break. Thanks for staying tuned, everybody. My guest in this segment is Dr. Stephen Tucker in advance of the world premiere of the late Bernard Gilmore's Journey to Freedom, which will be performed at the Soka Performing Arts Center on June 9th at 4 p.m. Dr. Stephen Tucker, once a colleague of Bernard Gilmore, is the conductor of the Symphony Orchestra at UCI and professor in music teaching conducting orchestration, and analysis at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts. His performances at the school include symphonic concerts, opera presentations, and performances with the dance department. Before joining the faculty at UCI, Stephen Tucker was conductor of the musical theater workshop and assistant conductor for opera UCLA. Prior to that, he was music director of the Newmark Ensemble, a Southern California chamber orchestra and chorale, and the Southern California Young Artists Symphony. Stephen Tucker has conducted in Bratislava, Slovakia, Budapest, Hungary, Canada, and most recently in Taipei, Taiwan, the latter city in which was the inaugural exchange between National Taiwan Normal University and UCI as part of a sister school agreement between the two universities. In 2005, Maestro Tucker made his Avery Fisher Hall Lincoln Center debut and has made additional appearances in the U.S. conducting the Los Angeles Master Chorale, the Long Beach Symphony, and the Pacific Symphony. In 2012, he instituted a special collaboration between the UCI and Santa Ana High School Symphony Orchestras, the most recent performance of which was last month. Results from this collaboration include Santa Ana High School's increase in students applying to college, as well as similar relationships between the art, dance, and drama departments at Santa Ana High School and UCI. Maestro Tucker's degrees are from the Vienna Conservatory, International Conductors Institute, and Conductors Institute at Hart School of Music, a Bachelor's in Music at their conservatory, the Atlantic Union College, and both his Master's in Music and Doctor of Music Arts degrees from UCLA. Maestro Tucker's twin brother, Dr. Paul Tucker, is the director of 
choral activities at the University of Kansas. And they both will be conducting their two orchestras for the the Journey to Freedom this very Sunday. And I'm so glad to have him here in studio with me. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Maestro Stephen Tucker. Thank you very much. So Phyllis Gilmore was on this show back about five years ago at a memorial concert following her husband's uh, Bernard Gilmore's death the year prior. The man who made music appreciation his life's work will get an additional evening of appreciation in his honor and memory this Sunday, June 9th. And we have with us today Dr. Tucker as a colleague of the late UCI professor uh, Bernard Gilmore. And I just wanted to quickly, just a few notes about the late Bernard Gilmore. He's a California native and he received his bachelor's and master's at UCLA and his doctorate in music, arts and conducting from Stanford University. And his instrument was the French horn. And I'll ask about where the French horn may figure in Journey to Freedom. And he taught at UCI for about 24 years. So would you, Stephen Tucker, tell us briefly a little bit about how your work and Barney Gilmore's, to be more informal about referring to him, how your work converged at points here at UC Irvine? Absolutely. When I got to UCI in 2000, Barney had been here for quite some time already. I came to realize that not only was he a wonderful professor, but he was an outstanding horn player and lover of music. I also found out that he had been hired at UCI to conduct the orchestra somewhat like I had been hired. So I had this a simpatico relationship mm. with him. He would come and play in the orchestra when he didn't have to. He came and sat in the horn section and played. It was wonderful to have him there. But uh, some of the things I enjoyed most was when he and I talked. Sometimes we'd go on drives because we had to go up to UCLA or somewhere for something. And we would talk in the car, I'd be driving, and he would just tell me all these stories of when he came first or when he conducted where or when he played in the orchestra for some very famous conductor. But one of the things I remember is during that period of time, I was still looking around for a place to go. I wanted to leave, and I could confide in him in the car and say, you know, Barney, I'm not going to stay here very long. And I will tell you this, that Barney made me stay. He convinced me that what I was doing here Soft was very... Soft power. He wasn't twisting your arm. No, he just talked to me and just explained why it was important for me to stay. 18 years later, I'm looking back and I'm still here. Yeah. And that was Barney's doing. Building the house that Barney there started. You so... When Phyllis was on this program back in 2014, she talked about his compositions, that they were inspired by his commitment to civil rights. How has, before we get to Journey to Freedom, how has his work reached you? Well, I, I haven't had too many performances under my belt of Barney's works, but I can tell you that the one work that is played most around the world is his five folk songs for soprano and band. And for his memorial service, when I say memorial, the department did uh, 
a tribute night. It was beautiful. To Barney. I remember that well. And the wind ensemble conductor, fortunately for me, couldn't be there. So I was asked to conduct that work. It was the highlight of my life to actually conduct Barney's work with one of the soprano students here with the wind ensemble at UC Irvine. I think he would have been very proud of that. His music has many influences, but I must also warn people, it's very varied. You will hear one thing and then hear another and go, oh, that's not the same composer. Well, that was Barney. To his tribute. Absolutely. That's hard. Very difficult. I mean, everybody knows Philip Glass. Right? Yes, <laughs> it's like, right. oh, got that. But Barney, you would drop the needle. We wouldn't know, oh, it's the same man. We'd never know. And so when I tell people that I'm not an expert on his music, I just know that I've experienced and I can say, it is really and truly very varied, and especially with Journey. We wondered, where did this come from? Because this was just completely different, an amazing work. So then, how did this project come about, putting together this world premiere? A little behind-the-scenes work here. Oh, it's. I'll tell you honestly that, I mean, Phyllis might find this... Uh, interesting, but Phyllis tugged at my heartstring when she said, Stephen, I found this work. I had no idea it existed, and I wish I could just hear it before I die. Oh, oh my goodness. How can you get out from under that? <laughs> I mean, especially that it's Barney's music, and I loved Barney so much. So when I said to her, well, let me think about it. Let's Let's look at it. And when we really started working and we started thinking of how to get a large chorus in that would actually undertake something that's deathly difficult. And I said, well, my identical twin is the director of choral activities at KU. You know, we could see it what... It came right to your mind. I mean, you, you saw oh, yes. that piece right, right oh, yes. down in the first oh, yes. piece of the puzzle. No question that he would find it interesting also. Okay. And so when we... Did he ever know Barney? Yes. Okay. Yes, he did. So that's a important connection. Yes, absolutely. He knew Barney. Uh, and so when we sat and talked about it over quite a few months, we decided, well, it's going to take a lot of work, but we're interested, so let's move on. And here we are. The University of Kansas committed to it. Wow. Their donors put up funding to get 50 singers out here they just arrived this morning, and they will rehearse this week by themselves, and then at the, towards the end of the week, they'll get together with the orchestra, and we will be ready for Sunday. And you've performed in Soka many times, so it, it's, it's a pretty decent little house to be in, eh? I would say. I won't tell you how I feel about it because it will hurt certain people's feelings, but I think it's one of the best halls I know. Wow. <laughs> Lots of ears burning all over, <laughs> but that, this will be an international scope. Oh, yes. Okay, wow, oh, yes. okay. Well, so talk about the whole work that contemplates so many aspects of the human condition. Yes. Based on Barney's point of departure, Barney used the, the biblical telling of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and 
he has some very cynical and sarcastic ways of, of, of turning the phrases. But what he was doing was showing the universality of this experience for all kinds of people. He wasn't trying to promote any particular thing. He was simply using texts to say, you know, most people have experienced this, and there are people still experiencing it. But the, the whole idea is this journey we have to take that will get us to that freedom point. So it's a very intriguing, but I will say it's compelling because if we just take our, our personal experience out of it and just think globally, then the text speaks to everything that we could imagine people are going through. So there's a lot getting woven into this that, as you, you mentioned, the Torah, uh, Exodus, mm-hmm. and Psalms, and there's original. It's Barney's own right. written material, the libretto. So, and it, it, I don't know who's, it's in his composition that this is a contemporary setting of Exodus at all? It is textually, you don't see anything that's specifically new, but in the music and the painting of the text, it is dramatically and oh, completely contemporary. Amazing, because this work was finished in 1981. Wow. And so we're talking about last century, and today it sounds like it could have been written last night. It's that contemporary. Stunning. Uh, sort of the monument to how our se- the seasoned among us. Actually, it's not just that. It's sort of like when Don McHale was with us. It's like one of these giants mm-hmm. that we were among. I, I think we're a little too casual sometimes with right. these giants right. among us. And so this is very much another standard bearer's contribution. Exactly. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Maestro Stephen Tucker, who will be conducting Journey to Freedom composed by the late Bernard Gilmore, professor at UCI for 24 years. This is a posthumous world premiere, which will be performed at Soka University, June 9th, 4 p.m. And Maestro Tucker will lead the UCI Orchestra, joined by visiting course from the University of Kansas, his, directed by his twin brother, Dr. Paul Tucker. So then um, there's like this more intimacy involved here as far as there's world-class artists, one of whom was a student of both Phyllis and Barney Gilmore's. Do you want to talk about Awet Andamichael? Andamichael. Okay. Awet, I met... A soprano. Yes, a soprano. I met through Barney and Phyllis, and they didn't just treat her like she was their student. When I met them, they said, this is our daughter. And I, I I just came to understand that the relationship between them was such that they would go anywhere, she would do anything she w- for them because she was a part of the family. Now, she's a very successful, outstanding soprano. She lives on the East Coast, and um, yeah, people can look her up because sure. I certainly couldn't spend all this time telling you about her because there's just too much to tell. But she will be here to do the soprano role in that. Uh, she's one of the three main soloists he he asked for. 
So I'm not going to make a tight comparison with Handel's Israel and Egypt, but I I want to sort of recall how there are the soloists and the the two chorus that Mm -hmm. are sort of the interplay. Does Barney sort of tap into sort of that that give and take in this composition? Barney's method of of using the chorus is is twofold. We we think of the uh, the old dramatic Greek chorus, right? But we, he also uses the chorus to serve as I will tell my orchestra and the chorus. This is the voice of God, and if you think you can imagine God's voice, and then you realize. Anything we can imagine would sound like us. It would sound like how we know people sound. But my perception, when I hear the chords, he gives the chorus. It's like listening to something like some possessed being oh, wow. representing that voice. And I go, wow, that's pretty clever because it's a voice that you cannot conjure up. So he's put chords together for the chorus so that they sound like this otherworldly being. It's an amazing effort. And then at other times, they're just singing as humans, glorifying God. So Phyllis has been kind to put appropriately putting together some of the the notes for the program and in in advance I was able to see that she's talking about there's also an arrogant leader kind of figure. So that's another voice to deal with and a contemporary wink, I'm sure. Right. There is a baritone soloist. Yes, let's talk about those. Yes. Yeah, the baritone soloist is really the, the both the narrator and the voice of Moses. Sung by Jose Rubio. Jose Rubio, right. So he has the burden of delivering the story and at the same time playing the role of Moses. Whereas the tenor, Genaro Mendez, is now serving as only Pharaoh the old Egyptian king, right? And he, I, I I hesitate to say this, but Barney, you can see and hear Barney's humor in this because in my voice, in my hearing, I say, why did he write for Pharaoh like this? Even the tenor asked the question. You know, oh, yes. Hinaro called and said, does he really want this? And I said, yes, if he wrote it, he wants it. So I said to the orchestra, you will hear the tenor sing in a voice that makes you wonder, why why does he have to sing so high? right?" And I say, I think he's emasculating Pharaoh as a joke. And so you see Pharaoh acting like he's such a powerful person. But in the long run, we all come to realize that he was really afraid and he thought he was lashing out against God to show that he was powerful until the very end when he realized he couldn't win. So Barney carves these things. You hear Moses, you hear the narrator, you hear Awet's solos and Ferris, and you go, oh, I see. He's painting the picture of inner, the psychological behaviors of these people. 
and this will there will be some notes or some sort of preparation because I know lots of people before seeing plays want to to read up before be prepared but so the audience is in for something quite extraordinary to come to these sort of characterizations and caricatures right. as it were all together right. and they, it's probably going to you're going to sort of if you turn, if you're able to turn around maybe you'll be able to it'll be palpable people are squirming and they're trying to figure out what what's taking place before them that's correct it will be a surprise they will have the libretto so they will see all the words in projected or is it printed right in the book in front of them and i would like them to see it yes as they hear it good because some of the stuff will be so surprising that they will have to take a second look and go really is that what he said and this is where they will be drawn in to that that story that barney wanted them to get that's a tremendous service you're doing, though, so that we can I not hope. miss a beat, and because it's it's live, and that's it's actually a little bit out taking my question out of sequence. But I wonder how torturous it is for those that are performing when it's going. It's one performance of this. It's, it must be agony. You're bringing this baby in, and then the baby is sort of taken away. Yeah. Nobody gets to, to keep staying with it. It's it's one of the most difficult things for performers to come to grips with, that you put in all this work, and I mean weeks of work, and you become so attached to this thing, you deliver it, and then you must walk away. It's it it's painful at times. Must be. But I always tell them, just think of what you just did for the people who heard it. It's not painful because you did it. It's painful because you have to leave it. But we will always have the memory of doing this. And fortunately for us, we'll have this recorded. Very good. But that doesn't take away from everybody's utter need to get their tickets. And I I have those details that I can offer here at Mm -hmm. the end. Well, we've talked a little bit about each of the roles. Is there something more you'd like to say about the soloists? We gave them the short shrift, but there may be more, like what, well, what, how these roles came to them. What, how they're, you're seeing them growing into those roles. I don't know their ages, but I, I don't know if uh, they have extensive backgrounds that they, they can draw from things, or they're just winging it here. with. When the, when the audience hears this performance and here's these three performers these three soloists they will realize that there is there is no shortchanging here we went for the very best yes and uh we talk about jose coming just coming back from singing overseas and had to really we had to carve this out to make sure he could fit in and he had to carve up his life to make sure that he could put something else on the back burner. He had to say to his agent, well, I will fly later for that, but I'm coming. I'm going, I'd like to do this. I remember he was finishing up something in China when he wrote back to me and said, uh, just finished the final performance last night and had a look at Journey to Freedom. He said, my goodness, that is very challenging, but a worthy project. I would like to do it. Let me move something. So we can do that. Hinaro is a professor at the University of Kansas. So it seems like it was a little easier to get him because my twin brother was there to um, negotiate with him. But no, he wanted to do it. He asked Paul if he could do this because he didn't know I was considering him. So this very 
very extraordinarily original composition. It's, it's going to put some demands on them. That The winging it, I just meant in sort of that intense download of a whole different sort of a, it's like a, a performer's skill set. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they're sort of disengaging from perhaps conventional ways of, of delivering their roles into something. So it's it's a, it's a really a, a redirection for them and, and a sacrifice of their calendar. And, and they see it as a major challenge. Yes. And to them... This, as one said, this is worth hearing. Mm. Therefore, I must sing it. Isn't that? Oh. So, what's it like collaborating with your brother? <laughs> well, uh, I tell people all the time that it seems, and it must be seen as a gimmick when we both perform at the same time. The only time I think I've ever conducted with him simultaneously was in November at our mentor's memorial. And he conducted the chorus, and I had the orchestra in the final work, which was written by our mentor. And that was not something we practiced. We don't practice that stuff. No. But it just worked so well. We must be twins. I don't know. Right. And so that's actually maybe a very helpful experience to pull off this challenging performance. Yes. Now, in this case... We're not conducting together at the same time, but the project would never work without us both doing it. Okay. So he's not on the stage? Oh, yes. He is, but for a different work. Okay. Okay. So what do you want the audience to take away from this? They'll be blown away, but what else do you want them to, to keep chewing on from there on? The first thing is I I would like us to continually think of Barney and his contribution. I I really would like that because sometimes I find myself, even in the department where Barney worked for so long, that it it becomes easy for us to to just do our everyday life and just think, okay, so-and-so was here, not here anymore, but I look at the students he taught. And I think of all the things he contributed to the department. And I take myself, for example, without him, I don't know where I would be. Mm. I probably would not be at UCI right now because I was actively looking. For some strange reason, I just felt like, well, this might not be it. But he sat me down and pointed out that you never know what you can accomplish and who you can change. And I keep remembering that, and I hope this music changes the people who hear it. And they can see that this man was not just here for a while and then just gone, but he came, he contributed, and he should still be contributing. And he remains. Yes. Well, the journey to freedom is the piece we're talking about, will be performed by the UCI Symphony and the University of Kansas Symphonic Chorus. Symphonic Chorus. And this will be performed at Soka on June 9th. We'll start at 4 p.m. The details will be on the podcast, but I guess I can quickly say the ticket office number is 949-480-4278. And everybody has a performing arts page, so to Soka, so you can go there. So Stephen Tucker, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to come to the studio today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck. So we're going to close out the show 
with Barney Gilmore's Violin Concerto Number One. It's uh, Opus 65. It's his third movement. So as I send you all out today, that next week, my uh, esteemed colleague Janine Bernstein is going to be filling in for me. She's the host of Get the Funk Out. You can hear her on Mondays at 9 a.m. on KUCI. And then I'll be back the next week. That's on the 18th. And I will be talking about the Anaheim Stadium negotiations. This is really a high noon, high finance proposition. I'll be able to have on Anaheim Council Member Jose Moreno, among other fine things. So talk to you two weeks from now. Janine will talk to you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.